right. Well, today we're beginning a new series that's probably going to take us uh, roughly through early to mid-June, and we're calling this series Epic, Great God, Great Stories. And I hope to accomplish a number of things with this series. First of all, I just want to highlight some of the great stories in the Old Testament. I don't know how familiar you are with the Old Testament, but it is just full of interesting, exciting, uh, kind of like epic stories. And um, many of them, most of them, are stories of God's care for his people, how he takes care of us in very obvious ways, but how he's also taking care of us in less obvious ways. So even when God's people realize, uh, sometimes they realize he's providing for them, and other times they don't realize he's providing for, him, for them, but he's still doing it. And so we, we see that in these Old Testament uh, stories. In addition to all of that, these stories have a lot of good lessons for us that are applicable to our lives in 2017. All these many hundreds and even thousands of years uh, after these stories took place, there are lessons uh, that are beneficial to our lives. And so we wanna, we wanna learn those lessons. And then in addition to those things, I wanna highlight how the Bible isn't just a book full of disjointed stories that don't have anything to do with each other. But the, the Bible is actually one uh, narrative that reveals to us from beginning to end that God is inviting all of the people of the world to return to him, to come back into a relationship with him. And we're also going to see in various places how the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, who is God's final answer for bringing the people of the world back to himself. Now, we're not gonna deal with these stories chronologically, and we're certainly not gonna be able to cover all the great stories in the Old Testament, but we will cover one of these great stories each week uh, of the series, and we'll try to highlight one of those things that I've just shared, and some weeks we're gonna be able to accomplish all those things with uh, one story. We'll see in one story God's care for his people, we'll find lessons that we can apply to our own lives, and we'll show how that story ties into God's larger redemptive work uh, in the world. And so today we're beginning our series by looking at the sixth chapter of the book of Judges in a sermon that I've titled, Gideon and the Destruction of an Idol. And so I want to begin uh, by, uh, by reading Judges 6, 1 through 6. And the first thing that we need to find out as we approach this story is the context of the story. What was happening in Israel at the time of the story, what the condition of Israel was like at the time of Gideon. And this is what we find in these first six verses of Judges chapter six. So I think it's on the screen behind me. Uh, I'll read and you follow along as I do. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then 
the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. So this is the uh, setting for the story, the context. Yet again, Israel has done evil in the eyes of the Lord, and God has given them over into the hands of their enemies, the Midianites. Now, it's important for us to understand that the book of Judges is set at the time after Israel had possessed the promised land. You may remember that they wandered around in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. God had, uh, had said that they would uh, be able to uh, enter the promised land, but through unbelief and unfaithfulness and all of these different things, they had just wandered around and not possessed the promised land. But, but finally, under the leadership of Joshua, they had taken possession of the promised land. But there was a problem. There, there was a big problem. When they possessed the promised land, God had told them that they were supposed to drive out all of the inhabitants of the promised land. They were supposed to drive out all the enemies of God and of Israel, but they didn't. They left these other people in the land. And not only that, but over time, they started to adopt and worship the false gods of these Canaanite people, these pagan peoples. They worshiped the false gods. They engaged in the sinful practices of the pagan peoples. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Some translations of Judges 6 uh, begin by noting that they did evil in God's sight again, because that's the story of the book of Judges. God delivers the people, they serve him for a while. Then they reject him and begin to adopt and serve false gods. Life gets hard for them because God lets it get get hard for them and they turn back to him. He delivers them again and then the cycle repeats itself. Really, this is the story of the entire Old Testament. Uh, It's the story of the Bible and mankind in general. And if we're real honest with ourselves, it's the story of all of us sitting in here today as well. So the story begins with unfaithful Israel oppressed by Midian because they are under the discipline of God. And in this story, we discover that the purpose of God allowing his people to face difficulty, the purpose of God's discipline is to persuade his people to return to him. God's discipline is not a punitive thing. God's discipline isn't God just you know, venting his anger or his outrage at people. God's discipline is always toward a redemptive purpose, toward getting people to return to him, to come back to him. And his discipline here in Judges 6 resulted in the Midianites basically allowing Israel to plant and grow crops, raise and care for livestock, and then when Israel was just about to benefit from all of this work of growing crops and caring for livestock, the Midianites would sweep in and they would plunder everything that Israel had. And we see in verse six that God's discipline achieved its purpose and the people of Israel, having been impoverished at the hands of the Midianites, finally cry out to the Lord for help. And so this is the setting. This is the the context of our introduction to Gideon. 
And now that God's discipline has achieved its purpose and the people are crying out to him for help, God purposes to save them from the Midianites and he sets in motion a plan to deliver him, uh, to deliver them. And, And his plan includes choosing Gideon to lead the Israelites to overthrow Midian and gain freedom from their oppressors. Now in verses seven through 10, we're not gonna read those, but what we find is that When Israel first cried out to God, he sent them a prophet who reminded them of some things. The prophet reminded them of their deliverance from Egypt, reminded them that they had disobeyed his command to drive out the inhabitants of the land, reminded them that they were instructed not to worship false gods of the land, but they had done so anyway, and reminded them that in all of these things, they had not listened to God was an unnamed prophet who brought that message to the people. You know, every once in a while, we need to be reminded that we're just kind of being giant screw-ups. Every once in a while, we need to be reminded of that. And uh, you don't seem to agree, but it's true. Every once in a while, people need to be reminded, you are not doing what you're supposed to do. And hopefully, we can receive that message directly from God. But if we can't, sometimes God will send us someone and say, hey, you need to be called to uh, uh, account. So on that positive note, let's go forward. So with Israel crying out to God for help and with God having reminded them that they've brought the trouble on themselves, God then sets in motion his plan to deliver them. He chooses Gideon to lead the deliverance. So let's pick up in verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Ebezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites. And I love the way the New Living Translation says this. You will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So Gideon is chosen by God to deliver Israel. But I want you to notice a couple of things about Gideon. First of all, I want you to notice that he is hidden. He's hidden. He's in an out-of-the-way place. Gideon is not someone that the community is looking to for leadership. Gideon is in hiding. He is threshing wheat in a wine press in a hidden place to, to keep it and to keep himself from the attention of the Midianites. Not only that, but he says himself that he is from the weakest clan in Israel. And in that weakest clan in Israel, he is the least in his family. 
He's not the one that everyone would be looking to for deliverance. He is hidden and he is the least. And then there's more than that. Not only are all those things true, but Gideon is cynical. He's cynical. Far from a picture of faithfulness and confidence in God, he is cynical toward God. He is cynical toward, uh, toward God's uh, care for Israel. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders our Father told us about? God has abandoned us. These are questions that most of us come to a point in our relationship with God where we are tempted toward cynicism. Things don't always go the way we want them to go. God makes some decisions we wish he wouldn't make and we're tempted toward cynicism. God, what's up? Where are you? Why is this going on in my life? And this is where Gideon was at. He's hidden. He's the least. He's cynical. But the angel of the Lord calls him mighty warrior. It almost seems like a joke because he's not a mighty warrior. He's hidden. He's the least. He's afraid. He's cynical. It's not a profile of a mighty warrior. He was all of those things. But the more important thing was that he was chosen by God. That was way more important. God saw who Gideon was but God also saw who Gideon could be. Every one of us here today, God sees us exactly as we are, but he also sees us as we can be. God sees you as you can be. God sees the person that you can become. And so if you're not happy with who you are today, God can help you become the person that you're supposed to be. He sees that person and he wants to help you become that person. Gideon then asked God for a confirming sign. God gives him a confirming sign. And so in response to that, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord. He worships the Lord. All of that's covered in verses 17 through 24. So we have the setting, the context, Unfaithful Israel, under the discipline of God, oppressed by the Midianites. We've met the man that God has chosen to deliver Israel. And then God gives Gideon his first assignment. Now next week, we're going to look at the actual victory over the Midianites. And that is the part of the story that I think we're probably most familiar with. But today we want to look at a part of the story that sometimes doesn't get attention, gets overlooked a little bit, but it was the first assignment that God gave to Gideon. Before Midian can be defeated, there's something else that has to be done. Midian cannot be defeated until this is done. The worship of false gods has to stop. It just has to stop. And so here's God's first assignment for Gideon. We pick up at verse 25. That night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, 
pulled down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded, but he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Wow. Understand the significance of this first assignment. What appears to be the case is that not only was this altar to Baal and the Asherah pole belonging to Gideon's father, but it appears that the altar and the pole belonged to all of the people of the town. Baal was a Canaanite god, a fertility god. And Asherah was sometimes regarded as his mother and sometimes regarded as his wife. But either way, it made no difference, and this gets kind of gross, but the pagans believed that Baal and Asherah were responsible for harvest and for children, basically anything that fell under the heading of fertility. And so what often occurred, not, not always, I can't say with absolute certainty the Israelites had gone into this depth of sin, but it's very possible is that an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole, which simply would have been a, a pole or a tree representing the goddess Asherah, would be located together on a hill, on a, on a high place. And because the pagans believed that it was the sexual union of Baal and Asherah that resulted in fertility, they would often worship on these high places by having sex in these locations. And the purpose of their doing this was to arouse the gods so that the gods would then have sex that would result in fertility. We're just keeping it real today. It's in the Bible. You don't need to send me a nasty email. God put it in his word, so we're allowed to talk about it. And here's a good lesson to learn from this. Whenever you decide the people of God in 2017 are a big old mess, just remember this story and realize that things actually are not the worst they've ever been. God's been dealing with his people being a big old mess for a long, long time. And here's another thing to take out of this. Even people doing these kinds of vile things, God wanted those people to return to him. God still desired those people. He, he did not write those people off. If God wouldn't write those people off, he hasn't written you off. God wanted those people to return to him. And, and so Gideon is instructed to tear down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole that belonged to his father, his family, and their entire town. Friends, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Imagine being tasked with doing something like this. Now, you know, we, we don't have a, a, a similar type thing that I can use as an illustration, but you know, an idol can be anything that gets our affection above God. And, and so imagine scenarios like this, okay? Imagine that your husband has made an idol out of an old sports car that he owns, and you know that he loves the sports car more than he loves God. 
And God tells you, here's what I want you to do. Take that sports car to Buckeye Lake. Put it on the boat ramp. Put it in neutral and give it a shove into the lake. Now, how might that go over? That, that's what God told Gideon to do. That's his first assignment. Destroy the idol of the town. Now, now, let's imagine one that's even more frightening than that. Imagine that your wife has made an idol out of her shoes. And God tells you to gather up all of her shoes, put them in the backyard, and create a bonfire out of them. How, how might that go over? Here's the point. Tearing down an idol is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's the kind of things, the thing that makes people afraid. And it made Gideon afraid. But it had to happen. It had to happen. Because before Israel can be delivered from Midian, the false gods have to come down. The, the worship of the false gods has to stop. The idolatry has to come to an end. And so Gideon did as instructed. He tore down the idols and he builds an altar to the true God, Yahweh, on top of the place where the altar to Baal had been. And he uses the wood of the Asherah pole to burn a sacrifice to the Lord. So let's see the response to that. It's in verse 28. Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. In their place, a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son. The men of the town demanded of Joash, he must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal is truly a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. Of course, Baal did nothing to Gideon because Baal is not a real god but a false God, a fake God, a figment of people's imagination, a God created by human hands, which is no God at all. So Baal did nothing. He was powerless. It's a remarkable story. Faithless Israel crying out for God's help. God chooses a hidden, scared, cynical man who is the least in his family to be Israel's deliverer. And God's first assignment to Gideon is to tear down the false gods of his family and town. He does it, and the false god is exposed as powerless. That's the story. I think that's a pretty cool story. But what relevance does it have for us today? Are there lessons from this ancient story that we can apply to our own lives, that we can take encouragement from? The answer is yes, there are. And so for the next 
few minutes, I want to highlight four lessons from this story that we can apply to our own lives all of these years later. And here's the first one. You might be in an out-of-the-way, hidden season in your life. You might even be scared of the circumstances in your life right now. But God knows where you are. He knows what you're capable of. And God has a plan for you. You might feel as though you're part of the weakest clan. You might feel as though you're the least in your family. And that might even be true. But God knows who you can be in him. And God has a plan for you. You just need to be willing to accept his plan when he reveals it to you. No matter how inadequate you feel, no matter how disadvantaged you might be, no matter how the experiences of your life have scarred you and caused you to go into a shell, to go into hiding, when God taps you on the shoulder and says he has a job for you to do, you can be certain that whatever God calls you to do God will enable you to do. Some of you high schoolers here today, you may have a dream for your life that you're intimidated by. Maybe you've even been deciding against it because you're afraid that you're just not up to it. I just want to encourage you, if God is truly calling you to it, then you are up to it because he will empower you and make sure that you're up to it. Some of you here may feel that God is calling you to start a business or to start a ministry that the, that the deck seems stacked against it ever working. Some of you here might be called to start giving away more money than you ever dreamed that you would give away or that in a way you think even makes sense. But if God is telling you to do any of those things or whatever God is speaking to you personally, if it's really God telling you to do it, then you can do it. You just have to trust him and step out in faith. Here's the second lesson. God can turn your cynicism to faith. Gideon was cynical. We saw it in the text. But he was transformed from cynical to faith-filled. He tore down the altar and the Asherah pole because cynicism gave way to faith. Next week, we're going to look at the actual victory of Israel over the Midianites, and he was able to lead that victory because cynicism was replaced by faith. Cynicism was replaced by faith because Gideon had an encounter with God. And if you're here today and you're finding yourself cynical, you either need for the first time in your life to have an encounter with God or you need to have a new and fresh encounter with God. And so if you're here and you're cynical, and you know, I, I think in 2017, many of us are tempted by cynicism. And if that's you, you need to have an encounter with God. You need to have your cynicism like Gideon's give way to faith. You really can have your cynicism be replaced by faith and you really can believe again that God cares. You really can believe again that God delivers. And so ask him. 
Say, God, I, I don't want to be cynical anymore. God, God, I don't want to keep living in this negative place. God, I need to encounter you. Help me to experience you in a new and fresh way. Take away the cynicism. Replace it with faith. Third, this is an important lesson. Just like with Gideon, the first assignment that God gives those he's going to use is to tear down the idols in their lives. If Gideon had not torn down the idols, if Gideon had not put an end to the idolatry, he would have never led Israel to victory. God would have had to find someone who was willing to tear down the idols. Until someone did, Israel was not going to have victory over Midian. Listen, here's what I believe. I believe God is incredibly patient with us. I know that God has worked in my life and even used me during seasons where if I'm really honest about it, I had an idol in my life. But our walk with God and our effectiveness for God are always compromised. They are always damaged when we engage in idolatry. When something or someone has our attention over God, has our affection over God, is being worshiped by us in place of God. To please God, to walk close to God, to fulfill God's plan for our lives, we have to tear down the idols in our lives. Now, I feel very confident in believing that none of you have a secret altar to Baal hidden in your basement. I am very confident that none of you have an Asherah pole in your backyard or a tree that you have designated as an Asherah pole. I'm very confident of these things. But we're still guilty of idolatry. We serve money instead of God. It's an idol. We serve leisure instead of God. Leisure is an idol. Can be. I, I mean, leisure in its right boundaries is a, is a blessing. But leisure outside of those boundaries, leisure is the object of all of our attention and affection and everything in our lives revolving around leisure. It becomes an idol. We serve career instead of God. Again, career is a great thing. Nothing wrong with a career in and of itself. But if you, if you worship that above God, if you have more affection for your career than God, then it becomes an idol. We worship power instead of God. We worship sex instead of God. Some of us love our country more than we love our God. You know, I don't, I don't think those things are necessarily in conflict. A lot of Christians seem to think they are today, but I, I think you can love God and love your country, but you can't love your country more than you love God. That's idolatry. Some of us love our country more than we love God. We have idols in our lives. And God is telling us through this story that the idols in our lives have to be torn down. If we're going to obey him, if we're going to walk with him, if we're going to fulfill his plan for our lives, the idols have to be torn down. 
Friend, what a tragedy it would be for the God of the universe to create us, breathe the breath of life into us, save us through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, and have a specific plan for our lives. But we never fulfill that plan because we like leisure more than God. We like sex more than we like God. We like money more than we like God. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? And and yet that's what millions upon millions of people are doing. Millions of people have slapped the name Christian over their lives. They're worshiping something other than God. They're undermining God's plan for their lives. And what's going to happen is they're going to get to the end of their life. They're going to look back and they are going to be overcome by regret. But if we just tear down the idols in our lives, we can get to the end of the life and we can look back and we say, God, thank you for having a plan for my life. God, thank you for your grace and in allowing me to walk that plan out. We can look back and we can have a feeling of satisfaction and contentment that we did what God wanted us to do. And finally, a great lesson that we can take from this story, a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible. No matter how sinful we may be, no matter how long we have served false gods, no matter how many years we have engaged in idolatry, no matter the depth of our sin, no matter the depth of the evil we've done in the sight of God, God is continually inviting us to return to him. He's continually inviting us. The Israelites at the time of Gideon had been horribly unfaithful to God. Serving Baal and Asherah, engaging in evil for years on end. And yet we see through this story that God is still trying to reach them. God is still longing for them. God is allowing the hardships in their lives for one purpose and one purpose only, to get them to return to him. And as soon as they turn back to him, he accepts them and he sets in motion a plan to liberate them from their oppressors. Listen, some of you need to hear this today. No matter what you have done or are currently doing, God is reaching out to you. God still desires you. And God is inviting you to return to him. You have not gone too far. You've not done too much. You've not ignored God for too long that he's written you off. God has not written you off. If God would ask those people to return to him, God wants you to return to him. He still desires you. He still welcomes you to return to him. And today in this service, God is calling for you to return to him. He's pleading with you, return to me. So these are the four lessons that we can take from this ancient story and apply to our own lives. You may be hidden and scared, 
But God knows who you are and where you are, and he has a plan for you. God can turn your cynicism to faith. Just ask him to do it. Ask him to give you a fresh encounter with him. And if you're going to walk with God and be used by God, you're going to need to tear down the idols that are in your life. And if you've walked away from God, he's inviting you to return to him. Let's stand. I'm going to ask.